Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? This past February, two big events happened inside the Christian subculture, if you will, the Christian bubble. One of them is the He Gets Us advertisements that have been commercials on television shows, football games, and then made an appearance on the Super Bowl. And that was really huge to have Christian ads on the Super Bowl where millions and millions and 100 million people or whatever it was watched them. The other thing was what you might not know as much about, and that is the Asbury Revival. Asbury is a college in Wilmore, Kentucky, and there was a revival that took place there among Gen Z. Now, you might think, well, what do both of those things have in common? Maybe nothing. Maybe they're just kind of separate events. And yet, I think they have something that we can learn from, because we live in a culture in which people don't know much about Jesus. They don't have a positive view of the church. You know, what is it? About 25% of Americans now consider themselves nuns, which is just people who have no religious affiliation, and about 30% of Americans are Protestants. So in this world that we live, people don't have a context for following Jesus. They don't know that much about him. And we as Christians have to say, okay, how are we going to present Jesus? How are we going to let our culture know who he is and why they should turn and follow him? And these two things, He Gets Us and the Asbury Revival, they offer two different approaches to answer that question. I think this is important from the Christian subculture perspective because it's a debate that's live amongst Christians. How do we reach a world that is, like you just said, increasingly disinterested in Jesus, know nothing about Jesus? And is the answer a marketing and branding campaign or is the answer revival and renewal inside the church? And is this an either or option? We have to pick one or the other, or is it a both and thing? We can celebrate both. And I think what also makes these things connected and very interesting to me is that people People have been highly critical of both of them. You have some people who love one and hate the other, love both, hate both. They've drawn all different kinds of responses. And so what we want to do in today's episode is look at each individually and look at the facts around them, and we'll evaluate them to some degree. But, you know, we're not experts in revival, nor are we experts in branding and marketing. And then what we'll do at the end is we want to compare and contrast these two different movements and see what we can learn from both, see if maybe there's critiques that we need to consider or maybe this is just something that we all need to celebrate. But because Heat Gets Us is probably the thing you're more familiar with if you at least watched the Super Bowl, I think we should start there. So Keith, give us the facts about Heat Gets Us. 
Well, He Gets Us is an advertising campaign put out by a group of very wealthy donors led by the Hobby Lobby owner. And what's his name again? David, David Green, Green, right? And first of all, how does Hobby Lobby have that much money? I mean, <laughs> all those stores and they make that much money? Because they're the people with the Bible Museum. They're always giving money to things. So how do you make that much money from a craft store? And second, why does everybody... Keith wants to know so he can make a little I, more I money. I do, 100%. <laughs> and, and second, why does everybody hate Hobby Lobby so much? I don't know. Maybe... Are they closed on Sundays? Did I make that up? I think they're closed on Sundays. No. Maybe it's just Chick-fil-A. They are closed on Sundays. Isn't Chick-fil-A it interesting that we Lobby. have these companies that practice the Sabbath and they're highly, highly successful? It has nothing to do with today's episode. It's just an observation. So the Green family is behind it. And the ads that they put together, there are radio ads, there are ads that are in Times Square in New York City. There are TV ads. It's all over the place. And they've spent millions and millions of dollars. In fact, they plan to spend about $3 billion. That's with a B, $3 billion over the next three years. And if you watch the ads, they're very, very well done. Oh, they're not like a Christian movie where you are kind of embarrassed to ask your friend to go or even like some worship services that are kind of mediocre. There's no cringe factor here. They're extremely well put together. Yeah. So just if you haven't seen one, you should go on YouTube. You just search for He Gets Us. You can watch one. But a quick description. They're all pretty similar. They use these very striking black and white images. And they're often of people who look different. There's white people and black people, Hispanic people. There's Americans and non-Americans. And so they show a wide array of the human experience. And often they've got really striking music combined with it and sometimes little monologues that tell a story. So one of my favorite ones, there's actually no monologue on this. It's just a bunch of images of people who are struggling. Homeless people, people who are clearly unable to pay their bills, people who don't have enough money. And at the end of it, text comes on screen and it says, Jesus couldn't make ends meet. And then after that, it says, he gets us. And I thought, wow, that is actually a really beautiful, powerful story because it's true. Jesus grew up in a subsistence culture. He probably didn't have enough to eat every single day. The average person went 60 days hungry out of the year in Jesus's day. And so in a very real sense, if you're someone who's struggling to pay your bills, who can't make ends meet, and maybe you think Jesus isn't like you, it turns out he's actually a lot more like you than he is like me, someone who's living a relatively affluent suburban lifestyle. Yeah, what they all have in common is that Jesus can identify with your human experience. There's one about outrage, you know, everybody yelling and screaming at each other. And I think it ends by saying, Jesus loves the people you hate. Or there's one about being childlike. And so it says, look, Jesus doesn't want you to be an adult. He wants you to be like a child and have the faith of a child. And when you watch the videos that they put on, you can't help but just appreciate how innocent kids are. And so what they all have in common is that Jesus gets you and your life and your experience and what you're going through. David Green said this, we want to say, we being a lot of people, that he gets us. He understands us. He loves who we hate. I think we have to let the public know and create a movement. According to someone directly associated with the campaign who works for He Gets Us, they said that this is an initiative, quote, to see the Jesus of the Bible represented in today's culture with the same relevance and impact he had 2,000 years ago. This is really kind of a marketing, branding. Now, when you say marketing, that makes everybody cringe a little bit. You mean marketing? I don't know what else to call it. These are ads that are paid for. They're well-designed. They're well done. They're trying to They're change branded. people's perception of Jesus. Yes. They're trying to take people who don't know who Jesus is and give them a positive image of Jesus. 
a different way of saying that is they're leveraging a free market inside of a capitalistic society to show a different picture of Jesus. They're saying, okay, if the rules of the game in our society are you have to pay a bunch of money to tell people something, we'll pay the money to tell them the most important thing. And I don't really have much of a problem with that. I mean, marketing and branding and PR, those can all sound like really negative words, but sometimes we need to use the tools that we have on hand to speak truth and to do something good and beautiful. What's also, I think, kind of cool is that it doesn't stop with the ad campaign. They partner with over 20,000 churches to provide volunteer follow-up. So sometimes this looks like a texting function where you can text someone and ask them to pray for you and they'll text back. They also have an online chat. So if you have questions or concerns or just life issues that you're struggling with, you can talk with someone on their chat. They also help people get plugged into Alpha groups. Alpha is kind of a evangelism program. It's designed for people who aren't Christians to just introduce them to who is Jesus, what is the Bible, what did he say? And the long-term goal there is to help those people get connected into local churches. Lastly, they also have a seven-day Bible reading plan on the Bible. There's actually five or six of them out there, but they have all these Bible reading plans. I've looked at them, and they're all designed to just introduce people to who Jesus is and maybe to break some stereotypes that people have because of their experience in church or with religious people about who Jesus is. So before the Super Bowl, they released some data. And do you know exactly when this was released? Is this 2022 this numbers? This was 2022. So this is well before the Super okay. Bowl. So I believe it was like last October. fall. Yeah, October and November. They had about 100 million people who had watched or listened to these ads, seen these ads. And they had about 30,000 of those people sign up for the seven-day Bible reading plan. And they were able to track that about 15,000 or half of those who signed up finished it. Now, what you don't know is, are these Christians? Are they not Christians? What happened after they read it? There's just a lot you don't know. Data doesn't answer every question you'd like, but 100 million, 30,000, 15,000 completed. It's funny because if you talk to any given person, some people are going to hear that and say, that's really exciting. 30,000 people starting a Bible reading plan, even if only 15,000 people completed that seven-day plan, that's exciting. We want people to be in God's Word. Other people look at that and they say, out of 100 million people, if that's the results you're getting, is this really worth the money you're paying? But I think the response from the people behind the campaign would be, well, yes, we want people in the Bible, but that's actually not our primary goal. Our primary goal is pre-evangelism. It's showing people a picture of Jesus that intrigues them and interests them. If they take the next step, that's great, but we're just trying to plant seeds for the time being that God might water later on and bring to fruition in faith. Right. People become a Christian through a process. Nobody just becomes a Christian instantly. There's always something that led up to it. It's kind of why Jesus uses imagery of planting, watering, harvesting. You know, you plant a seed, a lot happens, you don't even see it. All the action is happening underground, and then it sprouts and it looks really small and insignificant, but pretty soon you're harvesting fruit from that. It's kind of like where Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. And so I think the he gets us people would say, we have a long-term approach to these ads. We might not see for years, decades, maybe a century, how God used these ads. So let's talk about some of the responses to the He Gets Us campaign, and specifically the Super Bowl ads, because for whatever reason, that feels like the point where this really broke into the public's consciousness. And no 
no shocker, we had responses. In fact, we have my very favorite thing, the horseshoe effect. <laughs> the horseshoe, you know, is where people on the hard right and hard left end up agreeing, right? The people in the middle, they have some diversity of thought, but the people on the hard right and hard left find themselves agreeing with one another. It's kind of funny. It's always funny when it happens. Because they hate each other. They hate each other. <laughs> they would deny they ever agree with one another. They would deny the other team could ever be right. And yet there they are standing right next to their opponent saying almost the exact same thing. Yeah. So the ad that seems to have elicited this response was the one that Keith brought up earlier. These pictures of people who are protesting and fighting. I mean, physically fighting with one another and end saying Jesus loved his enemies. When you think about pre-evangelism, I think what we tend to think about is some sort of, you know, Jesus wants your life to be the best it can be, some kind of like Joel Osteen, nice sounding thing. What I loved about that ad was it was confrontational in like the most Jesus-y confrontational way. It confronted a culture which is obsessed with politics. It confronted people who have become incredibly partisan, and it said Jesus has a different way. And I do think that's a form of pre-evangelism because the vast majority of Americans are exhausted by politics. And so when they hear Hey, Jesus is just as frustrated by this, and he has a different way. We don't have to fight. We don't have to hate. We can love our enemies. There is something intriguing and stereotype-breaking about it. But let's look at some of the responses. Keith, why don't you give us a little AOC? All right. Here's what AOC said. She said, something tells me that Jesus would not spend millions of dollars on Super Bowl ads to make fascism look benign. So, I mean, that's a pretty loaded comment, right? (laughs) I mean, we can talk about the money spent later, and maybe she does or doesn't have a point there. But our are we sure that these ads are promoting fascism? It seems like a stretch to me. Well, it seems like a stretch. If it is at the level that the ad is not saying these people fighting one another and protesting and showing hatred, they're not the heroes in the ad. Jesus is the hero in the ad who says love his enemies. But anyways, AOC says, because Jesus apparently loves those fascists, which is actually part of the message, Jesus loves his enemies. He loves all people. That's offensive. Keith, give us a little Charlie Kirk. Okay, real quick, though, let me say this. What that ad specifically says that I think infuriates people so much is Jesus loves the people we hate. See, we don't mind if Jesus loves us, but we don't want Jesus to love those people, right? Us, but not them. All right, here's Charlie Kirk. He is the leader of Turning Point USA, a very conservative group. Major conservative pundit. I'm pretty sure he's attended, been at a lot of SBC events. I mean, this guy has a massive, massive following. Okay, so he says this. The marketing group behind He Gets Us has done one of the worst services to Christianity in the modern era. The Green family are decent, wonderful people who have been taken for a ride by the woke tricksters. So sad. Now, I'm sure he has to compliment the Green family because they probably give him money. I mean, I don't know. Or he hopes they'll give him money. It's one or the other, right? (laughs) Right? But it's the woke tricksters. Patrick, these ads that talk about how Jesus identifies with the marginalized and cares about people you don't care about, those ads are woke, according to Charlie Kirk. Let's dig into each of these critiques. Okay, so the progressive critique, both of them don't like it because they're rehabilitating people they don't like. (laughs) But the progressive critique has been focused on a few ads. There's another ad that talks about how Jesus got canceled. It's called The Influencer, and it describes this guy as an influencer and gets a following, but then he says some things that people don't like. And so what do they try to do? They crucify him, and at the end it says Jesus got canceled too. He gets us. Well, of course, progressives on the left who are doing a lot of the canceling right now, they don't like this message (laughs) 
that Jesus gets the people that they canceled. Likewise, like we just said, they don't like that these ads show that Jesus maybe even loves right-wing protesters. But I think the critique goes a little bit deeper. In a progressive Christian magazine called Sojourners, it described he gets us a political approach as, quote, naive. And it went on to argue that Jesus's message inherently challenged, quote, politically and financially powerful interests. Now, what I think they're getting at here is behind the He Gets Us campaign is the Green family and other very wealthy, powerful families inside of our country. And so having an ad campaign supported by them, well, he's saying those are exactly the kinds of people that Jesus would want to challenge. And kind of a subset of this is the idea that behind the He Gets Us campaign is this dark cabal of right-wing leaders who are somehow covertly using it to train people into right-wing politics. I find this to be a little bit absurd because these are the same people. They get angry when people on the right politicize their faith. But now when you have people in the Green family is on the right, now when you have people who are intentionally not politicizing their message, they're also wrong because now they're just trying to do it in secret. I mean, you can't win either way. You don't want me to politicize my faith, but when I don't, I must be doing something nefarious and dark behind the scenes. It's absurd. So if Patrick laid out the progressive critique, here's the conservative critique of He Gets Us. It's that these ads misrepresent Represent Jesus by attaching him to the woke agenda. That's what Charlie Kirk had said, is that these ads are woke in some sense. And probably the one he's referring to the most is the refugee ad. So we're going to play it for you, but listen to how the ad presents refugees, and then we'll come back and talk about it. It's probably important to know, again, you can go watch it. On screen are mostly Latin American refugees who are fleeing from violence in Latin America. That's what they're showing and depicting. As they're you, in a foreign country, right? Yeah, they're in a foreign country. You see them fleeing. You see them leaving. And even the person reading this has a Hispanic accent. And so there's clearly a connection being made here. And so let's just listen to this together. There was a mother and a father who had a son. They lived in a small village and didn't have much money, but they were happy. One day, they heard the head of their country was sending soldiers to their town because he thought they were part of an insurrection. The young family decided to flee. They grabbed only what they could carry and ran. They hiked for days, wondering if soldiers might still be following them. They were scared, hungry, and exhausted. But they were far away from the atrocities taking place in Bethlehem. That's all Mary and Joseph wanted, a safe place to call home. So the ad there ends, oh, you can't hear it, but on the screen it says, Jesus was a refugee. And so the critique from at least the conservative side is, look, here's what this ad is doing, is that it's promoting open borders and it's making all immigrants seem like good people. And therefore, if you reject immigrants from maybe the southern border, what you're really doing is rejecting Jesus. That's why they call it woke. Yeah, yeah. And the absurdism of it all is striking because nothing in that ad, so far as I can tell, is false. Right. Jesus really did flee from Herod. You no, know, he didn't technically move to a different country. He was still in the Roman Empire. I think some people tried to say, oh, well, Egypt, because he went to Egypt. Egypt was still in the Roman Empire. But no, he had to live as a refugee. He had to move to a different city. He was people on the run for know. his life from powerful interests who were trying to kill him. 
And however that leads you to think politically in terms of what you think we should do in public in America or how we should respond to the crisis of violence in Latin America, that's actually not really even a part of the ad. But the other side of the conservative critique has come from people like Tom Buck, who's kind of a Twitter influencer and also says some crazy stuff on Twitter on a regular Is he a basis. Yeah, he's a Southern Pastor. Baptist guy. And he claimed that He Gets Us was supporting abortion, it was pro-abortion, and that it was sending people to LGBTQ-affirming churches. Now, what he actually did was he went onto He Gets Us chat feature, and he pretended to be a mom considering getting an abortion. And because— did he really? Oh, yeah, he a did. A free time. Exactly. And because clearly in a chat, someone's not going to be able to walk someone through a life altering decision like that. And they didn't directly say, don't go get an abortion. That wasn't their immediate response. Now they're pro abortion. Now, if you know anything about the Green family or anybody else involved in this, like it's absurd. The LGBTQ thing was he pretended to be an LGBTQ person and said, hey, I need to find a church that would accept someone like me. And they said, hey, we've got some churches we'll send you to. And he said, see, they send him to LGBTQ affirming churches. The problem is the church that they pointed him to is not LGBTQ affirming. Just said to accept him, like love him, like come on into our church. We're glad you're I mean, here. They listed their influences. Just very normal, traditional sex ethic thinkers like Matt Chandler as people who have shaped their ministry. But people really latched onto this from the conservative side saying, see, they won't say the challenging thing. They won't roast the non-Christian who says they're LGBTQ right out of shoot, right on the chat. That's what you ought to do. And so that's the critique. That's why they are woke, apparently. In a little bit, it's just kind of exhausting because it shows you that no matter what you try to do, people are going to try to criticize you. And we're going to talk about, you know, evaluate this here in just a moment. But is this really something that you want to be all out against? Even if you have some reservations and some questions about it, even if you think you would rather invest your money in something else, is this something to be outraged about from either side, the right or the left? But I can see why so many churches, ministries, Christians just want to put their head down and not do anything. Because if you try to do something good, you'll get hammered by both sides. Oh, it's totally true. And that's one reason I actually do like these ads. They're not ads for truth over tribe, but these are very truth over tribe ads in the sense that they're saying Jesus cuts across our partisan boundary lines. Jesus cuts across our political divisions, and he really does get us no matter where you fall. And that's why they're offending people on both sides of the aisle. Wouldn't it be great if they were truth over tribe ads? I mean, you got me thinking there. Like if they just truth over tribe came up at the end of them. Do you know the Greens? Maybe we could try something. You're really trying to figure this one out. How do I make money like the Greens? How do I, how do I get into the ads? Okay, so there's one other critique about this. And I will be honest, if there's any critique that I do feel some resonance with that I think is maybe a little more valid, it would be this last one. And the basic question is, is this the best use of kingdom funds? Because there's a lot of money that is spent on these. I mean, it costs a lot of money to run ads just on a normal NFL Sunday game, which is where I saw them because it's the only thing I really watch. But much less the Super Bowl, which it's millions of dollars. So people ask, well, could you spend that money on something else instead? And, you know, you can always play that game. Whatever you spend money on, on your house, you could have spent that money on something else. On the car you drive, you could have spent it on something else. On the clothes you buy, well, you could have spent it on something else. So in some sense, I don't like this because it's a gotcha question that we ask other people, but we don't ask ourselves. And yet at the same time, you have to say we have limited resources. So what's the best way to spend them to accomplish our mission? Now, here's the deal. The Super Bowl is a cultural event. 
And the reason all these companies spend a lot of money to put their ads on there is because it causes people to talk about it and think about their ad for a long time afterwards. And that's what the people behind He Gets Us want to happen. They want people to be talking about this, thinking about this, free airtime, people like us talking about it. So in some sense, it makes sense why they did it, even if it costs a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we said, $3 billion over three years. That's a huge amount. $3 billion over three years? That's the commitment? That's what they said they're going to spend. $3 billion over three years. And that's just the first phase. I think there's a longer term plan to see this grow. I have some resonance with this for a single reason. Right now, we are going through what could end up being, if I can exaggerate, a institutional extinction event. We are seeing more churches, more seminaries shuttering their doors, more Christian media organizations shuttering their doors than we've ever seen in the past. And unfortunately, the best way to prevent that is by breaking hard left or breaking hard right. The churches that are trying to hold the middle and stay faithful to the Bible and stay faithful to Jesus' message, very much so the message that's in the He Gets Us campaign, they're struggling financially right now. We currently have 10,000 boomers retiring every single day. And while a lot of millennials might like their okay boomer jokes, you have to realize something. These are the people who not only establish many of the institutions that we live in and that we benefit from, they're also the chief volunteers, they're the chief leaders, and of equal importance, they are the chief givers. And as they're retiring, their ability to give is going down, 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 because you can't give as much in retirement as you gave before. And so what we're facing is a potential leadership vacuum, a potential volunteer vacuum, and a potential financial vacuum. And when you look at a billion dollars, you can, I think, ask the question, institutionally speaking, that could be used to plant thousands and thousands and thousands of churches or to help support thousands and thousands of churches or media organizations that are helping to not just give a one shot towards Jesus, but helping people walk in their faith for a lifetime. And so I'm with Keith. There's part of this critique that I think is silly because do you ask yourself (laughs) that question? But on the other side, I think there's a validity to asking if we had a billion dollars to spend and we wanted to see Christianity grow in the United States, wouldn't we want some of that to go towards institution building? And I don't get to weigh in on this. It's not my money. It's other people's money and they're trying to do their best, I thing. But I have some resonance with the question. Right. I agree. It's not a criticism to say if I had that much money and I was in charge of it and I'm not. So maybe God didn't give that to me because I'm not going to do the right thing with it. But if I did, what I would try to do is strengthen churches. It could be start new churches. It could be train pastors. It could be provide counselors inside of churches. It could be discipleship curriculum. It could be a lot of things that would make churches stronger because some of this, and we're going to wait probably till we get done with the Asbury section of this, but come down to what do you think the church's biggest need is? And the way that the he gets us, at least at this phase in their ministry, answering that question is by saying that we think the biggest need is to represent Jesus to our culture through this ad campaign. Okay, fair enough. I think that's a need. It's probably not what I would say is our biggest need. And to reframe what you said was you said the church's biggest need, which then, of course, it's going to be building churches. What I think you meant when you said that is what's the biggest need in a post-Christian culture that is in desperate need of a missionary encounter from Christians? Yeah, that's fair. What will cause the most people to come to know Jesus? Which one of these two models? It doesn't have to be an either or. It can be a both and. Now, I think a fairer way to evaluate the He Gets Us campaign is just evaluating it by its own goal. So Ed Stetzer, he was previously at the Billy Graham Center, and now he's at Biola. He just changed 
Jobs, fantastic thinker, and he's all about mission and church planting, deeply invested in the church. He's had a big influence on my life. He's been a part of the He Gets Us campaign and shaping where it's going. And he described it as pre-evangelism. And what he said is that in an increasingly secular society, campaigns like He Gets Us help establish familiarity with Jesus, with people who know nothing about him. And here's a quote. He says, the more distant Christian memory becomes in culture, the more you will need apologetic centers and pre-evangelism ad campaigns. So he thinks that this is really an integral part of reaching the culture for Jesus. Well, we talked about the idea of becoming a Christian as a process and that these ads could be one step toward embracing the gospel. And you don't have to say the whole gospel. That's another criticism from the right is, look, they didn't tell you that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you need to put your faith and follow him. Well, you don't have to say everything in one conversation in order for it to be an effective biblical message. So I agree with him. I don't have a critique of that. That's good. So I think to evaluate the campaign by its own metrics, its own goals, you'd simply have to ask the question, what's the response been among non-Christians and probably de-churched Christians? Isn't that hard to know? Exactly. Impossible I think it's to know. really hard to know. I mean, until they start releasing some data on the kind of end results. Everything's anecdotal, just what you've heard people say. Yeah. You know, and that's, I think, what's maybe made it harder for me is just anecdotally, the people who I've heard love the ad campaign have, in my experience, exclusively been Christians. Now, if I'm going to put on my cynical hat for a second, I would say we Christians have gone through a long period where there is very little positive public representation of Christianity. There's just almost none of it. Christians on shows are awful people. The way people talk about Christians in politics and in Hollywood is awful. And so there's something about seeing your religion represented in a way that's appealing and true and good and beautiful that speaks to you. If the goal of he gets us is to break Christian stereotypes about Jesus and to present a better way for Christians to follow Jesus, then goal accomplished, I think. I think a lot of Christians would say, yes, that that happened. But remember, the goal is to reach non-Christians and de-church Christians. Well, my guess is it affects de-church Christians. In other words, people who have one foot out of the church door, maybe just left it and are maybe through these ads, give Jesus another look. I'm not so convinced that the hard non-Christian, the committed non-Christian, the indifferent person, the person who doesn't care about faith at all is going to be reached. But what do I know? I think that's right. You know, the refugee ad campaign is kind of a quintessential example of this for me, which I loved that ad. To understand that ad, how much do you actually already have to know about Mm. Jesus for it to make sense? That's a good question. Like, do you have to know about Herod? Do you have to know that he tried to kill all the little boys in Bethlehem? I don't think so. I don't know how much you have to know, but do you have to know Bethlehem? And I know that sounds silly, but, you know, back when I did ministry with people in their 20s, we were going through the book of Acts, and I'll never forget this. We're reading the stories of Saul, and then Saul is converted and becomes Paul. And for almost everybody in the room, their eyes lit up. They said, what? (laughs) I can't... Saul is Paul. They had never heard it before. And I thought that was lovely and beautiful. And I thought, okay, we're doing it. You know, we're really reaching people. So maybe you assume everybody knows Bethlehem is where Jesus is born, but that's the only reference point in the actual ad. That's the twist at the end is it's a story about a refugee and then it says in Bethlehem. I think to a de-churched Christian, this could really connect with them. I'm just not sure how much people have to know to get what it means that Jesus gets me in those ways. And so those are questions I have. I hope what you're hearing is we have a lot of positive things to say about he gets us. We think there's some valid questions, a lot of really stupid responses (laughs) as as well. And I think really we have to wait in the future to see what God does through this to give an honest total evaluation.
We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. All right, so let's now talk about the revival at Asbury. And if you're not familiar with it, here's how it started. On Wednesday, February 8th, they had one of three required chapels that the students have to go to each week. And a guy named Zach McKeribs, I think that's how you say his name. He's a 32-year-old volunteer soccer coach, lives in the area. He was supposed to give the chapel sermon that morning. Okay, can I pause you? Because I've listened to interviews with him, and the guy is super winsome. You know, he he yeah. basically said this was a terrible sermon. Right. In fact, he called his wife and he joked afterwards and said, hey, I was honestly kind of lazy and I wasn't ready for this and I feel kind of bad about it, but you know, I hope God does something. And if you listen to the talk, I'm not dogging on the guy. I mean, he said it like it's not an outstanding, great, you know, motivational talk. It's a good Bible talk, but there's nothing special about it. I think he said he got in late that night before and he had to kind of throw something together because he wasn't really prepared. Anyway, he's a real genuine guy. Well, The auditorium had been packed. I mean, there's 1,400 seats in that auditorium. People leave, except not everybody leaves. A few people stay back, and they just kind of keep praying and singing. And then kind of a text goes throughout the college saying, hey, something's happening over here in Hughes. You might want to come back. And people start coming back here and there between classes, and the number of people who are praying and kind of singing together just starts to grow. And boy, did it ever grow. I mean, I think I saw an estimate of about 100,000 people over the course of a couple of weeks it went to Wilmore, Kentucky, which is where Asbury is. Now, Wilmore is a two-stoplight town. It has one grocery store. It has a population of just under 6,000 people. So you can imagine that 100,000 people coming to visit and be <laughs> a part of this. But essentially for two straight weeks, they just sang, they prayed, they confessed sin. The editor of the student newspaper wrote a column online, and I saw this increase today. She said, during a call of confession, at least 100 people fell to their knees and bowed at the altar. Hands rested on shoulders, linking individual people together to represent the body of Christ truly. Cries of addiction, pride, fear, anger, and bitterness sounded, each followed by a life-changing proclamation, Christ forgives you. 
So this is a real spiritual moment where people are confessing sins. People who have been separated, divided in their relationships, are reconciling to one another. It seemed like there was a real genuine transformation happening there. Yeah, one of my favorite stories from a student who was a prayer leader there, he described two different relationships that he had that were unreconciled. And he's sitting there praying and asking God, you know, what do you want from me in this moment? And he starts looking through his journal and he finds a journal entry about this friendship that he'd left unreconciled and he felt it on his heart and he looks up and there's the guy that he had not been reconciled with and he's making direct eye contact with him and they came and they spoke and they reconciled and you're hearing stories of conversions you're hearing stories of people you know hearing God speak to them but what I love is when I hear revival for whatever reason you know I think about like Toronto and the charismatic movement and people Chaos. you know people like barking like lions and soaring like eagles and just doing all kinds of crazy stuff and what I've heard again and again from people describing this is that that is not the mood of this revival. It's peaceful, it's quiet, it's well-ordered, and it's not chaotic. In fact, there's some charismatic people who came who got angry because they said, oh, you're quenching the spirit. Why I think this really matters is this is a revival for Gen Z. So let's pause and think about that. This is one of the most anxious generations in American history. And what's revival look like for them? Peace. <laughs> I mean, it's just really beautiful. This is one of the most lonely generations in American history. And what's a revival look like? Hands on shoulders, connectivity, speaking, talking, praying with one another. This is one of the most digital generations in American history. And what's it look like? It's analog. There's no ads. There's no PR. There's no marketing. When celebrities called and said, hey, can we come lead worship? Can we help you? And I think in a genuine, sincere way, they said, nope. We got it covered. That's not what this is about. Yeah, I read that Greg Locke, your friend, <laughs> if you've never listened to Patrick's interview with Greg Locke, go back to the beginning of Truth Over Tribe. It's priceless. It's a wild ride. Anyway, he showed up, I read, and they were like, yeah, no, we're not giving you the microphone. Carrie Job, who is a very talented, well-known Christian music artist, showed up. And from what I understand, she just went up and received prayer. Uh, most of the students who prayed for her probably didn't even know who she was, but it's not like they said, oh, Carrie Job's here. Let's put you up front. Tucker Carlson from Fox News was going to head there with a the camera crew and all. And according to Tucker Carlson, they said, no, please don't come. That's not the spirit here. And Tucker Carlson was like, hey, that's awesome. You know? we don't have to go. So good for him for doing that. And kind of the theme is there's no celebrities here other than Jesus. So students worshiping, praying through the night. It didn't get co-opted by politics. None of that. I was very impressed with the way the school administration handled it. And then finally, it ended on February 23rd. The school kind of brought it to a close. But I will say this, because we talked about the he gets us ads on the Super Bowl. Where I knew this was legit is when the Super Bowl came and the worship kept going. <laughs> Hughes was packed with students during the Super Bowl because I thought, oh, the Super Bowl is going to end this revival <laughs> but because I'm cynical like that. And it didn't. You know, It really felt like it was something that God was doing. God's spirit was there. God's power was there. And it was pretty cool. Just to be totally candid, I've listened to more podcasts than I can count now, interviewing students who were a part of this and hearing stories and experience of people who were part of this. And just personally, I could not get through one of those without at least tearing up. I mean, what God was doing and how the Spirit was moving people and calling people to repentance and renewal and conversion and transformation was beautiful. And another bit that has received some critique is about a quarter of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ. And so as you can imagine, in a Gen Z revival, you're going to have a lot of people there who do identify as LGBTQ. 
LGBTQ and hearing the stories of people who are gay and they're saying, I've chosen to live a celibate lifestyle for Jesus and they're a part of this movement and there's still hurt and pain and all kinds of other things mixed in. There's a great episode on Theology in the Raw. Preston Sprinkle, he interviewed a student and it's a powerful story. But what's powerful is that these students felt a sense of healing and a sense of calling in a way. It sounds like they haven't experienced in the past. And I think part of that was there are people showing up with signs and shirts saying God hates gay sex, God hates gays. And they just kicked all those people out. Yeah, and I want to I say, well, like, amen, you know, because that's not the spirit of God towards his children who struggle with LGBTQ issues and same-sex attraction. And so anyways, it's a beautiful story. Yeah, I think I was a little unsure about all the people going there. You know, like I said, 100,000 people show up. People are driving. People are coming in from Brazil all over the world, right? And part of me was a little bit weirded out by that. Like, why do you have to go there? Is it like a relic back in church history that people just wanted to to be around the relic? Yeah, a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And on the other hand, I thought, well, maybe it's like the woman who wanted to touch Jesus' garment. Right. I mean, she didn't have to. She could have just kind of stayed where she was and had a little revival there. But she knew there was something in Jesus that she just wanted to get close. And so I guess it all depends on motive. It's not like that's a magical place or something. And yet for a brief time, God's spirit was there in a really powerful way. And so I don't hold it against people for wanting to go and experience that. Yeah. You know, I think one of the difficult things of living in a secularized post-Christian culture is, and Charles Taylor, great philosopher, talks about this. We've lost our sense of enchantment. We live in a flat world where all that exists is what I can touch and feel and see. And there is no spiritual reality that interpenetrates and is a part of all of us. And sometimes these moments happen where you get what some people would call a thin place, a place where all of a sudden that thickness and buffered reality where all that seems to exist is science and the material world, it thins out and we experience a connection to God and his spirit. And so to be honest, I kind of wanted to go up there. And as I hear people talk about those who came up, you know, the students would say, yeah, I know at first I was a little bit perturbed, but when they saw the sincerity of the people who were coming to be a part and to experience what God was doing there, they realized, no, this is beautiful because this has become a thin place where God's spirit is especially present. And I think our theology has to have a place for that, for the moments where God shows up in a special way. It happens throughout the Bible. And so we shouldn't be cynical about it happening in the present. Yeah, and the school did a good job of protecting space in the auditorium for students. So all the visitors didn't drive the students out. You brought up the Bible and, you know, the Bible never uses the word revival. It never kind of defines what a revival is. But when we read our Bible, we see God doing things that look like something that we might call a revival. As close as the Bible gets is using the word revive, like Psalm 85, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Or Habakkuk 3.2, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. So the Bible does talk about, you know, repeating the works that you've done in our day. But it's hard to define revival? Like, what is it from a biblical perspective? And there may be a few things that we could say. For example, revival is not something that human beings can control. It's something the Holy Spirit does. And you can't 
predict exactly when that's going to happen. Usually there's a time of spiritual darkness or a time of need that produces the revival. Like you said, it's anxious generation, a lonely generation, all the brokenness in our world. In the Bible, you see a revival when Hezekiah becomes the king. And this is like you can read about it in Second Chronicles. And what you find is it's a really dark spiritual time that people are sacrificing their children to Molech. And that's when the revival breaks out. Or you see that in the Bible, God's word launches spiritual change. So Josiah, King Josiah, finds the book of the law, and that starts a revival inside of Israel where people are repenting of their sins, which is another big thing. Like that's what's happening in Asbury. It happens in all the revivals. You find it in the Bible that when God's spirit shows up, people are overwhelmed and awed by his holiness. And they just say, look, I don't want to have anything to do with sin anymore. They just run away from it. Yeah. You made me think about John 3, 8. You know, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus at night because Nicodemus doesn't want anybody to know that he's talking to Jesus. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus about how he needs to be born again. It's kind of this funny conversation because Nicodemus is like, what do you mean? I got to crawl back up into my mom's womb? You know, how does this work? <laughs> and Jesus says, no, you're missing the point. You need to be born again spiritually. And he makes the point that just like you can't control your own birth, you didn't pick when you were going to be born. You didn't choose to be born. You can't control where the spirit moves. And he says this in John 3, 8, the wind blows wherever it pleases. And by the way, that word wind is pneuma, and it's related to the word for the Holy Spirit, which is spirit is also pneuma. So there's wordplay happening here. So he's like, the wind slash spirit blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. And it seems like what Jesus is saying, look, you can't see the spirit except for by what it moves. And I think that's really true in our lives. And when you look at something that's a renewal or awakening or revival, whatever word you want to use for it, the only way you can see it is by seeing the spirit move, just like the wind blows the trees. That's how you know that the wind is there. You can't see it until you see it moving things. And I think beyond that, he's saying that, look, renewal and revival cannot be controlled. It's what Keith just got at. We can try our best to prepare ourselves for renewal. Ezra and Nehemiah is an amazing story of this, where they're continually setting themselves up to be renewed and revived and hoping that this promise of a new covenant will come. The tragedy of Ezra and Nehemiah is that it never really materializes. They prepare themselves for it, but it never really comes. And I just can't help but think that we have been for such a long time, I think, longing for this pressure to get released, for God's presence to show up in a special way, and nothing's happened. And it's only on the other side of a crisis of COVID and the loneliness that came out of that. I'd say even crisis and abuse inside of the church. I mean, isn't it interesting that this is like the least narcissistic, least celebrity-focused thing you could imagine? I think it's on the other side of crisis that God often chooses to move his spirit. But until then, all we can do is pray and wait and hope that he'll show up. One of the things we talked about in the He Gets Us ads is how non-Christians, people who are maybe atheists or really just people of no faith, nuns, responded. And it's interesting to see how that same category of people respond to Asbury. On the Honestly podcast, they had a woman who works for them, uh, the Free Press, works for the Free Press. I think her name is Olivia Rheingold, if I remember right. And she went there and she's Brooklyn, atheist, not Christian at all. And she was just overwhelmed, you could tell, kind of almost emotional, sincere by what she 
saw there. I want to camp out there for a second. The free press, honestly, this is reaching hundreds of thousands of people, and many of them are not Christians. I mean, it's run by a secular Jewish lesbian named Barry Weiss, who we really like. Hopefully one day she'll come on the podcast. But it's not just Olivia who's positive, because Barry's talking with her, and you can tell that it's also moving Barry in the moment. And I've looked at multiple reports from other secular media, and by and large, the response to this has been positive. And I think part of that's because everybody loves young people, and so when you see young people doing something so sincere and authentic and non-celebrity and not about themselves, everybody's hearts are moved by that. But it is striking to see the difference in response from non-Christians to the Asbury revival versus he gets us. I mean, he gets us has largely gotten critical (laughs) responses from the non-Christian world, whereas the sincerity of Gen Z, I mean, wow, it's really moved people's hearts. How are you going to criticize that? Yeah, so revival, people are going, is that new? Is that something that has never happened before? And no, that's not true. United States and really countries around the world have a history of God doing things like this in revival. So let me just point out a couple real quick ones just to give you a little bit of historical context because I think it will help us talk about this and think about it. The first great revival in American history happened back in the 1740s and included in this are names like John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, people you may not be familiar with unless you had a history class, but it's called the First Great Awakening and evangelicalism was established in the United States through these revivals. The Second Great Awakening happened in the early 1800s, and the name associated with this is Charles Finney. Now, in the First Great Awakening back in the 1700s, they were like, God controls this, we can't control it. Finney, in the 1800s, he started saying things like, well, no, you can control this to a certain extent. In fact, he said, you see why you don't have a revival is only because you don't want one. In other words, there are things that you can do that will bring about a revival. And one of those that he employed that is still around today in a lot of churches is the altar call. Well, the altar call, you know, end of a service where people are asked to come forward and make a decision for Christ or make a big commitment to Jesus and they sing just as I am over and over and over until someone does it. That's roots are all the way back in the second great awakening. And they used to have something called an anxious bench where people who felt like God was saying something to them would come up front and sit there. And then Charles Finney would preach directly to them. So it was kind of like this, I don't know, it feels like pressure to me. Maybe it wasn't, but that's what it feel like to me. So if you grew up in the kind of church or saw church signs for a revival advertised, you know, like coming up this week, we're going to have a revival. It's like, that's what I think. It was like the big tents and that's Greg Locke. He's got his big tent and it's going to be a revival and all that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's not the same as the Asbury Revival, no. right? That's totally different. This is something that comes more out of the Second Great Awakening and Finney and this idea that we can schedule a revival. <laughs> we can schedule when God's going to show up. But I will say this for the Second Great Awakening is there were a lot of real societal transformations that came out of that, that people root back, whether you're a Christian or not, doesn't matter. Historians root back into that awakening. Things like prison reform, temperance, Sabbath, you know, like stores being closed on Sunday to honor or a day off, women's rights, including women's suffrage, people root that back in that awakening. So that awakening, I'm not saying it wasn't real. I'm just saying there are some things that came out of it today that seem a little forced or manufactured for my tastes. Another example would be in 1857, a guy named Jeremiah Lanfer, or Lanfear, I don't know how to say his name. He began leading these little prayer meetings on New York City's Fulton Street Church. And the first time he did this, he said, hey, we're going to be here for you know maybe 30 minutes or an hour. And he's sitting there and 
no one shows up. And finally, after 20 minutes, six people show up. And then they do it again the next week, and 20 people show up. And it keeps going on and on and on until eventually it grows to 10,000 people, 10,000 men coming together to pray. And then it spreads from there to other cities and other states. The governor of Ohio eventually became a believer as a result of it. As many as 2,000 people in Cleveland were gathering together to pray. And why I bring this one up specifically is because it illustrates that in many cases, renewal and revival comes through the power of prayer. There is a real sense in which our prayers, even if we don't get to experience the renewal and revival in our own time, prevailing prayer for God to show up is often answered, if not in your generation, in a later generation. There are so many ministries, Young Life being one of them, that started with people praying. One of my favorite stories of Young Life are these old ladies who were in a church, and they were just praying for the high school across the street. And eventually, the guy who started Young Life started praying with them. And those prayers are eventually what launched Young Life, which has changed you know hundreds of thousands of lives. That's what changed it. And as I've thought about Asbury, I think about my own college experience. I read a lot of these revival stories when I was in college, and I heard about you know prevailing prayer. And I would go onto our campus. There's a little chapel. And I mean, really, basically every day I would pray that God would bring renewal and revival on Mizzou's campus. And I never saw that happen. But as I saw the Asbury revival, I did feel this sense of, yeah, it's not the campus I was praying for, but <laughs> <laughs> but I did feel the sense of, this is God answering that prayer. It wasn't in my generation. Millennials, we may never experience revival and renewal, as sad as that may be, but I'm so encouraged to see God answering that prayer in the next generation. And I know I'm not alone. So one more thing on this is that college campuses have often been the places that revivals have started. Like Asbury itself has had eight different revivals. Now, not all like this one. In fact, all different. That was part of the reason we went to I think this is by the, far the largest one. The first, second great awakening, the prayer revival that Patrick just said, is they don't all look the same. They have different emphasis. They last different length of time. God's spirit doesn't work the same way in all places. But back in 1995, Wheaton College in Illinois had a revival. That's not that long ago. And what marked that one was was confession of sin, that people were just confessing deep, dark sins in their lives that they've been hiding and repenting and turning of it. And back in the early 90s, when my wife and I were on staff with Campus Crusade, we saw something similar like that happen, where there was a woman named Nancy Lee DeMoss, and she gave a talk to 6,000 staff members at Colorado State University, staff members with Campus Crusade, and it was on pride versus brokenness. And at the end of it, they had to scrap the rest of the plan for that week because people just were confessing their sin, coming up to the microphone to confess their sin, going to people in the room that they had a beef with and working through it. So those revivals are more about confession than anything else, and that's awesome. So I think a little bit what's happening in Asbury has happened before, but this is what I would say. Maybe I heard somebody say this. I don't know. It's the first revival in the age of social media. And so that's why there's all this talk about it and momentum, because people are sharing their stories and more people are aware of it happening. Yeah, and maybe that's a good segue into comparing and contrasting Asbury and He Gets Us, is this idea of social media. Because how are they different? Well, one is highly strategic. It's got immense, massive financial resources behind it. The other one is entirely organic. You can't find an Asbury Revival website or TikTok account. 
count, but if you look at hashtag Asbury Revival, I think it's something like 100 million views. I mean, insane amounts of people have been engaging with this, and it's all totally organic. And so there's one big difference between these. A guy on Twitter responded to me, and I kind of like what he said. He said, the Asbury Revival feels like innocent as doves, and he gets us feels like wise as serpents. And so he's trying to affirm them both in one mm, sense, yeah. saying we need a place for strategy. But at the end of the day, the social media dynamic looks totally different. And I think it's undeniable that the Asbury Revival has received much more positive attention from people. When people see people's lives transformed and renewed, that has a power to draw people to Jesus, I think, in a different way than a big ad campaign is going to be able to. Yeah, as long as everybody understands that we are for both, at least I am, right? I think you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're for both. It is clear that the He Gets Us comes across as more manufactured just because of what it is. It's a TV commercial. It's a radio commercial. It's a billboard. You have to put time and thought and prep and what message do we want to convey? And the Asbury thing feels more authentic, raw, real. There's no words on the screen. People are just dressed however they are. They don't let celebrities up front. You know, so it doesn't feel manufactured. <laughs> and for some reason, right now in our world, that just seems so appealing. It's grassroots and resource light, and there's something authentic about it. I think another major difference is that one is centered on Gen Z and led by Gen Z, whereas the other is paid for and executed by older generations. Right. People don't like the old people, right? And so they, <laughs> they, they yeah, well... Okay, boomer. No, I don't want to say that. What I will say is that these students have been put through a crucible and probably in a way that most, you know, 18 to 22-year-olds haven't faced in living. And everybody has a heart for people. They missed their high school graduation. They've yeah. missed a couple years of college. They're dealing with anxiety. They've been locked inside, lost their friends, all kinds of problems. So people want this generation to get a break. Yeah, and they've had to live a highly online life in a way that no other generation really has had to live. And so one of the beauties is that we're just seeing, because it's led and centered on Gen Z, it's so wild to me how the response from the Holy Spirit is speaking to that generation's needs. And we already hit on that, but it does seem different. Like, He Gets Us is kind of for everyone, but the specific tone of the Asbury Revival and what's happening there seems so specifically directed to the hurt of a specific generation. You know, it's interesting that the He Gets Us is targeted towards non-Christians, right? Like it said, hey, we want to go out and tell non-Christians who Jesus really is, kind of represent the real true Jesus, not the political Jesus or the therapeutic Jesus, but the real Jesus of Scripture to non-Christians. And the Asbury Revival wasn't like that at all. It was Christians. It's on a Christian campus. <laughs> they're wanting to get their life right with Jesus. They're wanting to refine Jesus themselves, re-experience, worship Jesus. And somehow, ironically, when the people who are Christians kind of get their act together and confess their sin and are honest and worshiping and sincere, it's like that is really attractive to non-Christians. It's a wild difference. One's targeted to non-Christians. The other one seems to be targeted to Christians. But the net effect of that one is drawing people to beauty. I find that to be an interesting contrast. And again, it's not to say that he gets us isn't working. It's just saying there's something about seeing real-life people's lives transformed that is deeply magnetic. Well, this is in the iron then remember you said that you thought that the He Gets Us ads was probably helping Christians be more confident <laughs> in their faith, right? Yeah. So they target non-Christians and maybe are having as big an impact 
on Christians. The other one's targeting Christians and maybe having as big of an impact on non-Christians. Yeah, that is really interesting. Okay, one other big difference. One of these, the Asbury campaign, is deeply rooted in institutional life, and that's the logic that lies behind it. The other is rooted in branding and marketing. Now, we already said we don't have a problem with branding and marketing. This isn't a good thing and a bad thing. It's just to state, Asbury is an institution that has existed for a long time. These chapel services are a part of their institutional life. What they do, especially in their seminary, is send people out to go leave (laughs) institutions. And so this is a revival that strangely enough, it didn't happen in a church, but it's coming out of a church denomination. And so it's not coming from where we expect, right? I think maybe we expect like the local field in the neighborhood, that's where, you know, real revival is going to happen. But we're seeing that revival actually comes out of institutions. And interestingly, it's coming out of institutions. And like we just said, it's impacting non-Christians. And so this is deeply encouraging to me because I think we have this idea that institutions are what jeopardize Christian witness in the world. And that's why we want to deconstruct them, tear them down, critique them. And this is a deep reminder that when you have an institution that's not celebrity focused, that isn't narcissistic, that has a kind of authenticity to it, that's actually deeply appealing to a world that feels disconnected because institutions is where we do our life together. There's something beautiful there. I hadn't thought about that, but I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of Christians think we need to get rid of the church institutions so that we can get back to really reaching people and being authentic. And this revival came out of a required chapel service, right? It was not impromptu. Right. Not at all. So I hadn't really thought of it that way, but this is a reason to rebuild the right kind of institutions Mm -hmm. and then maybe see that God would light them on fire. So let's just take a second and ask, what does our culture, a culture that doesn't know Christ, a culture that has moved on from Jesus, kind of the nuns and the duns with church, people growing up without a real good view of Jesus and the church and faith, what do they need? Like if we're Christians and we're thinking about us as a church, where should we invest our time, our prayer, our money, our resources? Should we put it into something more like he gets us, which we've said is good and maybe bad, like both, or should we put it into something like a revival? But we can't control that, right? God (laughs) moves. So where do we put our resources in order to reach this current world we live in. What do you think? I actually think about what Ed Stetzer said when he said that, hey, we need some pre-evangelism. Then he said, we also need apologetic centers. Now, I might just add into that. And we also need really healthy churches. Ooh, ding, ding, ding. (laughs) If you stop and you think about it, I am for pre-evangelism, and I'm praying that God uses, he gets us to draw people to himself. But he gets us assumes, it assumes, and I think rightly, that there will be bodies of believers to receive these people, welcome them into their midst, train them, disciple them, care for them, and love them. He gets us, has zero value if there is no institution for those people to go and be connected to. And so I think that's a good thing. But on the other side of things, if we're looking at the possibility of a institutional extinction event, we do really have to wrestle with the fact that given limited resources, because again, boomers are retiring, there are fewer Christian in America than ever before. There used to be this kind of Christendom thing where we could float our boats on non-Christians who gave their money to their churches, but didn't really believe it. That world doesn't exist anymore. And what we're seeing with Asbury is that when you have real renewal in churches, it might not look like a revival like Asbury, but when you have true renewal where people are repenting of their sins and they're trying to walk faithfully with Jesus, that is the thing that will draw the most non-Christians to him. And so I do think this should press us towards planting more churches, emphasizing church renewal, and praying, prevailing prayer for revival to come in our local institutions. Again, might not look like Asbury. It might be a small-scale thing, but I think that's going to be the thing in the long term that actually impacts the most lives. 
I agree with what you said about the pre-evangelism. It's a good thing, but just the term pre-evangelism means that it's one point in a process of someone becoming a Christian. And if you don't have the next several points, like somebody to befriend them and tell them about Jesus and walk alongside and explain the faith to them, if you don't have that, then all the earlier steps kind of, well, they just fade out and fade away. I think I think that the church has, and I literally mean I think I think, that's not a stutter. (laughs) That's me saying, I'm not positive, but I think that the church's main problem is not that our culture doesn't have a positive view of Jesus. Because if you just kind of pull people out in the world, most people have a positive view of Jesus. The culture doesn't have a positive view of the church. And for good reason a lot of times, by the way, right? (laughs) Yeah, we earned that one. So yeah, if... I could say that we have a bigger problem. It's a discipleship problem. It's a problem of people who already identify as Christians following Jesus wholeheartedly, you know, dying to themselves, putting others' interests above their own, living out the fruit of the Spirit in their life, seeing their vocation as part of their discipleship under God. That's what we have. If we as the church lived faithfully, by God's grace, then I think a lot of these other problems would kind of take care of themselves. You are going to be faced as I am faced with the question of, I have limited resources. I have limited time. I have limited volunteer hours. I have limited money. And I have to decide what I'm going to spend myself on. And one of the things that I'm taking away from these two experiences, this is for me personally, it might not be the same for you, is that I want to spend more of my time, more of my money, more of my resources investing in the church. Healthy churches, churches that emphasize renewals, churches that are calling people to repentance, that are challenging people to walk in Jesus's ways, churches that are good and beautiful and true and just, those kinds of churches, I think that in the long term is what's going to reach a post-Christian world far more loudly than an ad campaign. Now, that's me taking my takeaway of where I want to spend myself. I think that Christians can easily get intoxicated by the sexiness, one might say, of having a vision of Christianity that looks positive in public when Christianity is viewed so negatively in public. And I think there's a place for that. But if we have to choose where we're going to invest ourselves, I think, I think, like you just said, that it would be in the church. And that's partially because we are coming out of a moment of crisis. And Mark Sayers, he described it like oil underneath the ground. It's pressurized, it's ready to burst, and we have to drill down and draw up that oil oil and let that spiritual power burst out. And I think that's what crisis does to us. So that's my prayer is that Asbury won't be a one-stop shop that will see maybe not revivals, but renewal in churches as a result of what happened there as people are inspired by the beautiful stories that took place there and the power of the spirit. I'm praying that's what happens is that we try to replicate that, not in a force way, not in a Charles Finney way, in our own environments. Yeah, one thing you don't have to choose between, though, is what you're rooting for and praying. And so we can easily pray and root for both of these things to work, Mm -hmm. that the He Gets Us ads would sit in people's heart and mind, that they would be like the old rock in their shoe that they just can't quite avoid. It just keeps causing them a little bit discomfort to be thinking about this one Jesus who gets them. And then we can also be praying that God would send revival and that the church would wake up and start following Jesus. Let's be people who are for both of these things. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.